0: Welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and each episode, Matt and I discuss the real-life struggles, ideas, and strategies of successful entrepreneurs and business leaders like himself. Unlike many of the startup or management advice you see out there, these conversations don't come from a book or a TED Talk, but from current daily ins and outs of an entrepreneur in the trenches making it happen every day. In this episode, we talk about market friction. This is something that I personally find fascinating because I never really thought about it before I started working with Matt, and now I can't stop seeing or or looking for ways around frictions in, in whatever I do. So we discuss how to identify market frictions, how to determine whether you're in a position to realistically solve these frictions, whether there's a business opportunity in solving it at all, and the plan of attack needed to take it on in your business. This concept really gets to the heart of Matt's entrepreneurial success, so it's really worth a listen. With that, here's Matt. So something I was thinking about, as you know, I used to be a reporter for, you know, 20 years or so. And, you know, one of the things that people used to ask me all the time, usually when I first met them, was like, where do you get ideas for your stories? Where do your stories come from? So sort of sparked a question in my mind for you as someone who's started and ran, you know, several businesses, you know, like where do you get your ideas for not just starting a whole company, but even within existing ongoing businesses, where do you get ideas for like, New products, new services. How does that process begin? How does that start in your mind?
1: Well, the easiest way, I think, to come up with business ideas in general is to focus on your actual experience with companies and with different products within the world. So you look for the pain that you experience as a user or as a consumer. I mean, entrepreneurs have this weird trait about them where they think that they tend to be really observant about what's actually happening in the world around them. They have this default belief that it doesn't have to be the way that it is, and they have the arrogance. Believe that they can actually do something about it. People who are entrepreneurial kind of have this as a predisposition. So they are pretty observant of things, often very critical of what they, you know, how things are being done. They believe it can be different and they think that they can do something about it themselves. It starts off though with observance and uh, about what's actually happening and being a little bit critical, having an experience as a customer, as a consumer with something and it not working very well. And I think one of the examples that we've talked about in the past is this idea with ticketing. I wanted to go see a concert. And I bought tickets from a secondary marketplace, and I had to transfer them through two different apps in order to be able to get them to a state where I could actually use them to go actually to the show. It's a terrible experience as a consumer. It's not like something that's so awful that's going to keep people from doing it. People want to go to the show and they want the tickets that they're going to go through this process. But that friction for the customer is the opportunity. That pain point is the opportunity. And there are lots of companies that are out there trying to tackle that specific thing with ticketing right now including all the major ticketing issuers. It's the experience of that pain or realizing how crappy that process is and that it really could be a lot better is
0: sort of the origin of a lot of ideas. Okay. So you experience that struggle and then it sounds like, yeah, it could be better, but you still got to take a couple extra steps, right? I mean, there's more than just like, oh, I could do it better. You have to kind of identify more precisely where in this process really is the point worth addressing. You know, the truth is, is
1: that Being able to point out problems is totally different than being
0: able to actually solve those problems. Well, exactly. Like, I was a journalist. I wrote a lot about problems, man. I didn't fix any of them, okay? Like, I just complained.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's easy to complain. And you realize the complaining is, it's easy to see that as a problem. Like, complaining sucks. We don't like it when people complain. However, it's that complaining is where the seed of opportunity really first starts. So, one thing I like to do, I have this whole kind of framework for thinking about these sorts of problems. Let me preface it first by saying that I think that all of the opportunity for entrepreneurs, 100% of it, is sort of contained within the friction, within the difficulty of between a person trying to get from where they are to where they're trying to go. All of the entrepreneurial opportunity that exists, all exists within, under this term I, I would call friction. And so in the case of the ticketing, it was just trying to get the tickets in a state, in my possession, and in a state where I could actually use them to check into the venue. And that was a complicated, convoluted process that my Certainly, my mother would not be able to make it through. That's one source of friction. But friction can be lots of things. It could be when something is just really expensive to do. When something involves a lot of uncertainty, you know, people have the doubt that keeps people from moving quickly. You know, that could certainly be a source of friction. You could also just have uh, you know the lack of knowledge about how one would go about doing it. That could be a source of friction. Certainly, time, money, things like that. Any of those things that could keep someone from getting to where they want to go can be labeled as friction. And that's where all of the entrepreneurial opportunity is. So that's first and foremost to to understand that. Then I think it's important when you're looking at any problem and you're complaining about it, although entrepreneurs tend to be arrogant, you have to be humble and ask yourself, why do I think that I would know any better? Like, do I know anything about this business? Do I know anything about the natural constraints that the current people in the business are dealing with? Do I have any domain expertise? Like, Is there even much domain experience where I would think that I have any justification for understanding the complexity of the actual problems that the companies are facing? And like these ticketing problems are complicated, which is why they're not totally resolved yet. And most of the problems where you, that you experience, most of the things that we complain about, problems are a lot more complicated. But again, it's in solving those problems and reducing that friction is where entrepreneurs can make a fortune. Frustration, understanding you have some domain expertise or some reasonable chance of understanding the problem well enough that you could actually solve it. The next thing is really getting into kind of diving deeper into the problem itself. And I like to use this framework, this be, do, have framework. Be, do, have. Be, do, have. Exactly. People are motivated to either be something, to do something, or to have something. And I think that understanding the specific motivation of the consumer or of the user or of the customer, however you want to look at it, is really critical in understanding, diagnosing essentially the friction that's there and then being able to understand if that opportunity is worth even pursuing.
0: Can you give an example of uh, be, do, and have in the real world? Like, you know, have would be the tickets, I would guess. I want to have these tickets. Under the B column, I, I like to think of
1: uh, fitness-related stuff. It just seems easier. Like, if I feel like my ideal weight is 195, I want to weigh 195. I want to be 195 pounds. The ticketing one would be more like a do one, actually. Oh, okay. Because I don't really want the tickets. That's a good point. I just want to go to the show. <laughs> right. So I want to go to the show. And have would be, could be something like, a, you know, want to have a have a new car, have a happy home, have a whatever. It could be, people are motivated around those three things. And digging into the motivation helps you understand really where the friction is. So take the ticketing one as an example. Again, the person doesn't really care about the ticket itself. The person cares about getting into the concert and the ticket is essentially, it's a means of initially reducing friction in the concert going experience. So I'm not
0: like handing the doorman money that's going to take time for change. I just hand them a ticket and I go through.
1: Right. Exactly. Or that you can reserve a spot. Ticketing resolved a lot of core friction. However, at this point, as the market has evolved, it has now become a source of friction. So understanding, again, somebody just wants to get to the show. And if you're trying to solve that problem, rather than trying to solve ticket portability, if you're trying to solve ticket portability, you're not actually solving a problem that anyone actually cares about except for the people who are- In the system of the ticketing. Yes. Right. Exactly. So- Drilling down into be, do, and have, I think are the key and really trying to diagnose what the consumer is trying to achieve and why they're trying to achieve it. Within these currents of motivation, there are strong currents and there are weak currents. The best business opportunities, the best entrepreneurial opportunities, I think, are found where the currents of motivation on the part of the consumer, customer, or whatever, are very, very strong, not weak. What do I mean by strong versus weak? Well, to be my ideal weight of 195 pounds is a pretty weak current. Like if I'm 196 or if I'm 194, does it really matter that much? Do I really, really care about that? Not really. And so I'm motivated to be generally around that direction, but I'm not, I'm not acutely motivated as I would be with maybe a different B goal. Like for instance, imagine I'm going to be a bride and I'm getting married next month and I need to fit into my wedding dress. If the goal is to fit into your wedding dress on your wedding day, like that is a very acute goal. It's right. very, very specific. There's an actual deadline tied to it what one will do to achieve that specific goal is whatever it takes. So knowing that you can feel the strength of that current, like how deeply motivating that is to the person who wants to fit into the wedding dress on their wedding day. You know, they can't change the wedding dress at that point. At least not easily, right? Not easily. And so they know what they need to do. And then, and the timeline is there. Other things are like to have or to do, let's say like, I you know, I want to set up a good 401k plan for my company. I'm interested in having that set up. I'm interested in having this benefit for the employees, but I know most of my employees won't participate in it anyway. I can convince them over time, but most people, younger people don't do it. So I'm not super motivated necessarily to make that a high priority. Whereas related on a financial matter, I mean, recently the tax deadline passed for if you file an extension, your tax return Mm -hmm. on October 15th, that's when your taxes are due, filed an extension. Right. Well, so on October 15th, which recently passed, Mm -hmm. I was very, very, very motivated to make sure that my taxes were filed, (laughs) right? It's a specific deadline. It didn't matter what else I had going on. Uh-huh. It had to get done. The current of motivation for me getting that done is whatever it takes, whatever financial professionals I needed to bring in to help get it done, whatever paperwork I needed to dig up, whatever had to happen, had to happen. So strong current. Just one other one I'll say around having, like acquiring things. Like there's a lot of things that we
0: all want. Desire versus need. Right.
1: Sometimes we don't know, you know, where that difference really is. Maybe the, the desire is so strong that we it feels like a need. You know, when you imagine, you know, buying things and acquiring things like, you know, want a new car or something like that. It's again, it seems like more of a preference, not a strong current, but like if you have kids, if you've ever brought home a new baby from the hospital, making sure that you have a car seat for that baby coming home from the hospital, that is, that you need to use, that it's safe, that there's a specific deadline for. I mean, even the people from the hospital come out and check.
0: Right. They'll check your car seat before you take your kid home. Right. But having the kid, there's no... No. (laughs) No, they intervene in weird spots, yeah. but
1: literally you have to have a great car seat and right. you're, and if it's your first kid, you're overly concerned anyway. Yes. Like you're super safety conscious. You go way out of your way, but this is a deep need and the current for it is strong and the price, you're not as concerned about the price of it. These things don't really matter. And so the current is strong. Again, getting my taxes done by the deadline, I'm price sensitive, I guess, about how much it's going to cost to do it.
0: But not as much as how much it's going to cost you if you don't file your taxes on time.
1: It's an obligation. It's a need. It must happen no matter what. They don't have to necessarily have a formal deadline, but I think that there's the motivation, the thing that makes the current strong is that there is a well-understood need on the part of the consumer. And part of it being well-understood is that they have in their own mind a deadline for when it needs to happen by.
0: Right. And I'm thinking, and I'm just guessing that as an entrepreneur, you want to find those areas, if you're in this have uh, space in particular, maybe. You know, there are fixed deadlines like what you mentioned with the October 15th. That's going to happen, you know, April 15th. These things happen every year. So you structure your business around these fixed deadlines. With the wedding dress, that's probably every week. There's going to be a new deadline every week from someone different getting married at different times. Sometimes they bundle up wedding season, et cetera, but they're not fixed calendar deadlines. They're situational deadlines, I guess.
1: Exactly. I think the key is if you know, if you're marketing, for instance, if you're TurboTax, if you're a company like that, basically your product is all around serving customers that their primary use of the product is going to be between January 1st and April 15th. That's great because it allows you to focus your marketing. It allows you to focus all your efforts on on those customers within that limited segment of time. And that's great. It's really useful, but you don't have to have something like that where it's a, a seasonal thing in order to create that strong current. You just have to be able to understand what's in the head of the consumer who really could benefit from your product and communicate to them knowing where their head is at. And so if you put yourself in the head of the bride who is coming up on her wedding day and is very concerned about looking a particular way on that day, and you communicate with her along those lines, you don't have to know what the deadline is, but you know that there's a deadline that she has. And so that's a strong current. So, like, I have lots of friends in the fitness business who sell fitness products, and they're all great products. But if they're selling to a market that is with a weak current where people just want to be more fit generally, they won't have much success. But if they focus on something much more narrow, which is something that really only exists in the mind of the consumer, if you're getting married in 60 days, this is the program you want to follow to make sure that you can fit in your wedding dress and feel your best. So, marketing it that way.
0: Got it. So, now we've got these three areas of be, do, and have. We've identified maybe an area that that we want to focus on as an entrepreneur. You can go down the wedding dress one further, maybe to some other ones. But like, you've got an idea. You've got the area that you want to focus on, right? You've identified, I guess, what you call the friction. Now, what you only want to do things where there
1: is a strong current, you know, a strong current okay. that's driving the consumer behavior. Otherwise, it could just be a fleeting thing. Then you want to look at the market opportunity more broadly. Is this a worthwhile pursuit at all?
0: What makes it worthwhile?
1: Well, it depends upon where the, your current state and your entrepreneurial journey. I mean, like, if you're looking for when I was a kid, a Kool-Aid stand was a good idea, right? It made sense because I just making a few bucks at a day would be fantastic. And so it made a lot of sense for me to pursue that. It wouldn't make sense for me to do that today. It just wouldn't be worthwhile
0: pursuing. It'd it. be one hell of a Kool-Aid stand though, Matt. I, I would really try to make
1: it <laughs> I'd try to make it great. So it's really depends on where you're at. Like so for me
0: But know, I mean more specifically, like you know, worthwhile is it gonna pay a lot? Worthwhile do I want to spend my time doing this? Worthwhile can this actually provide a need to people in the world, regardless of whether I like it or whether it makes money. I'm just trying to get a sense of when you say worthwhile, what that means. When you're early on in
1: your career, I think that what makes something worthwhile is, does it provide something for you that will enable you to do more in the future? Does it help you build something that is referred to by this woman in a book called The Defining Decade as identity capital? So even if it's not like the business that you plan to run or the problem you plan to solve for the rest of your life, it's something that you can identify the problem, you can work on it, and by doing it, you're going to gain a whole bunch of other skills and you're going to be in a better position to be able to do more in the future. Knowledge is easy to carry, as they say. That's right. Knowledge is really easy to carry, but very hard to acquire. Yes. So choosing things that are going to help you acquire knowledge at a certain point in your career absolutely makes a ton of sense. Okay. At some point when we started Royalty Exchange, you know, I was thinking, I don't know, do I really want to start another business? Do I really, really want to do that now? The thing with Royalty Exchange that made it interesting to me is that it was a, the problem was interesting. It's complex. You A know, marketplace problem is a much more complex problem. If we got it right, the economic opportunity was big enough to justify whatever amount of effort it's going to take to make it get there. You know, if you're starting a business basically from scratch, you have to plan on something like a decade. Maybe you can do it in five or seven years and make it something remarkable. If you're not willing to just take a decade of your life and set it aside for something, then it's probably not going to turn into anything truly remarkable. But I'm looking at it that way, I'm looking at, okay, I could be trading up to the next 10 years of my life or something.
0: So I think that gets to your depends answer. And when I say worthwhile, is that what's worthwhile to you for the next 10 years? And that's going to be very different based on where you are, exactly right. age and, and experience and things like that. Exactly right. Okay. okay. So, yes. right. so anyone anyway, who was listening is kind of have to answer that question for themselves.
1: Right. I was a lot more, you could say, reckless with my time when I was in my 20s. Sure. Because, because it, didn't was. Matter. Yeah, exactly. it didn't matter. It right. you know, I didn't I mean, I, it was impossible really to waste time. In my twenties, I mean, it was like I
0: impossible. guarantee I wasted my time in my twenties far more than you did
1: in your twenties. I know you did. <laughs> you got a lot more skiing in. There. Yeah.
0: Exactly, still do.
1: The important thing, I think, when you're in your twenties, you're early in your career. Gaining identity capital matters more than anything else you could do. Not trying to get rich. You don't deserve to get rich. You don't have the skills <laughs> to get rich. Like you got to get some identity capital first, focus on that first, and then the other stuff seems to fall into
0: place relatively easily. Okay. I, I kicked you off your flow here, so I okay. apologize. But so I just did want to get that worthwhile component better defined.
1: Okay. so you, But understanding the market opportunity is really important. So let's mm-hmm. look at using Royalty Exchange as an example again, and then we'll talk about some other companies that mm-hmm. might be more interesting to people. So with Royalty Exchange, looking at the market opportunity, we know that there's a few billion dollars paid out every year in the U.S. alone to individual artists mostly songwriters, okay? So $3 billion a year paid out to those folks, individuals, not companies. So that's interesting. $3 billion is a—it's uh, not the largest market in the world, but obviously there's something there. It's meaningful. Yeah, there's $3 billion a year that's paid out, which if you were to say, well, what's the value of that market? Put a five multiple on it, then we're talking a $15 billion market, the value of those assets, that royalties are paid out on an individual basis in the US alone every year. So that seems substantive enough that there's something there. Okay. On the other side of it, the side of it I came more from was on the finance and investing side of things, where there's literally nothing you can do with your money today, where you can get a reasonable risk-adjusted return. I right. mean, there's no yield in your savings account. Savers and investors are in a real bind right now. Pension funds are desperate for yield. Something like 14 or $15 trillion of debt in the world is negative yielding, which means- You're paying to uh, not to- have your money. Yes. It's the craziest <laughs> thing. No one thought this could happen in the world, but it is happening and it's only growing, which basically puts huge pressure on trillions of dollars of capital that's looking everywhere it can for a home, for a place where it can get a decent yield. So, knowing that there's this tidal wave of capital seeking yield, we know that there's something there if these assets actually can deliver that yield. So, that's where you start off with that theoretical concept where, like, that's big enough. And if we can just get these two parties essentially to interact, to transact with one another on a relatively frictionless basis there's going to be substantial opportunity there. It's that basis that the market assessment, the market
0: is big enough that it could be a worthwhile pursuit. What I like about your approach to how you entered Royalty Exchange is you've taken something you know a lot about and you're applied to something that you didn't historically know a lot about, but it affords you the opportunity to learn something about this other side of it. This is maybe more unique to the two-sided marketplace that is Royalty Exchange, but you're gaining a lot more, probably more music knowledge than you really cared to know going in.
1: I didn't even know there was that much to know,
0: right? Exactly. but but there's an enormous amount about any
1: area you find out. And this is why having some domain expertise is really important. Well, it's critical. So going in and knowing that, okay, I know nothing about music. I have luckily have people around me who know something about it and I can try and learn over time. If I didn't know anything about the finance side of it either, then it would be very, very difficult for this to work as an entrepreneur or as a business development person or whatever. Like having some domain expertise in the area where you're trying to solve the problem is really critical because you really can't understand the currents, the strength of the currents essentially that are driving the behavior unless you have had personal experience with it. So identifying the market opportunity is big. There's also a couple other things around that. The size of the market is really important. That's what we've been talking about so far, Mm -hmm. but there's also, there's some built-in constraints. And so understanding what are the limiting factors to this? And I'd say, use the royalty exchange example Mm -hmm. again. Well, if you structure these assets in a certain way, all of a sudden they become securities and they become highly regulated.
0: So we're talking about frictions within the frictions.
1: Is that a right way of putting it? It's kind of like when you're looking at the overall market opportunity and you can see how the size of it, Mm -hmm. you have to wonder what are the major reasons why someone might not be tackling
0: this effectively today? Part of me just semantics, friction versus constraint. I'm trying to make sure we're not like I got confused for a second. I think I'm not less confused. I understand what you're mean, that there's a friction, but then there's a reason for the friction. It's the An artificial means. Okay, actually, is the way it is.
1: So I'd almost think it's like friction is like something that it keeps people from doing what they want to do. And a lot of times that is technology related. It can be simple technology, mm-hmm. you know, like books are technology.
0: And to an they, extent, they yeah.
1: printing press, et cetera. So technology usually limits reduces friction over time. and innovation and Using technology mostly. But there are constraints that are artificial constraints that control the market. Like it could be that, you know, if you wanted to start a competing rating agency to Moody's, mm-hmm. the government has to authorize that
0: so friction is something that you can to a certain degree control constraints maybe you can't is that another way of putting it okay yes
1: yeah so i want to know what the market constraints are like is it illegal for somebody like me to even set up a business
0: that does okay it's the boundaries it's the rules that you have to play within to dress frictions thank you okay now i understand yeah these are the rules that are decided by someone else
1: we talked about the kool-aid stand earlier like i'd need a license to do that today really Yep. that's funny even kids I think there's exceptions for kids that they had to write those exceptions into the law. And if they haven't done that in Denver, then it is illegal in Denver.
0: Okay. Interesting. But there are, okay, there's constraints.
1: Yeah. Anyway, so understanding those constraints is really important because there might be reasons why, even though you can understand the strong currents, you know, you can understand you have domain expertise, you see the market opportunity is gigantic. But if there are key constraints that make it very, very difficult, unreasonably difficult to pursue, then you might want to reconsider and do something else. That's the fourth one though evaluating the market opportunity constraints and the size. The fifth one is really what exactly your plan is to capture that market. When I get most excited about a business opportunity, it's because I can see how number five would work. Now, I can see how I could attack the market. I can see how I could gain some of that market share that might be there. Usually it has to do with you have a unique approach to distribution. I mean, think of like Apple, anytime they get involved in anything, they go, well, we already have 100, 200 million, whatever iOS devices out Mm -hmm. there. And so we have distribution. So anything we want to push into the ecosystem, we can, we Mm -hmm. can win. They have a distribution advantage. It could be that you have, maybe you have a marketing advantage somehow, or you have a marketing approach that is unique and would allow, take advantage of these, um, you know, these strong currents and exploit could be a sales channel. I don't know, something like that. But if you can't imagine what your approach would be to actually acquire a customer, like what's the actual process? Like write down the steps it would take to be it. able to do it. Then then it's very difficult to imagine that the business opportunity, the approach makes much sense. So a lot of people get really excited. They see a problem. They get really excited about the idea. Mm-hmm. You know, they can understand the current. They, they imagine that the opportunity is big. What's the first step you actually take to start to drive customers to your door? And if you don't know that, then what are you going exactly, to do? There's nothing. Exactly.
0: It's a good book.
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Right. It's a good theory. So understanding exactly the way that you bring customers in, and I think that one of the things that I think it's so good for entrepreneurs to have some exposure to is that if you haven't done direct selling of some kind in your life, then I think that you're really hurting yourself. This is so much less popular today, but when we were kids, people would sell encyclopedias during the summer. Mm-hmm. You know, they would sell knives in the summers. And in my case, I sold paint jobs working for one of the college uh, mm-hmm. franchise systems. I had to actually sell. To individuals directly. And I had to convince them to trust me. I got to see how objections come up and how you handle objections and all of that. And like, without that kind of experience, it makes it very difficult to understand what it actually takes to provide the right message to a consumer at the right point where you are even tapping into these currents.
0: That's interesting. So, I, this could be a whole nother podcast topic, right? But this I could see you saying because this is your background in, in that marketing, that selling, and that kind of stuff. But you see a lot of startups today that are very much technology based startups. A lot of the founders are technology based founders. They see a, a problem that has a technological solution, and then they do that first, and then they find people to help them sell it. So, I'm just kind of wondering when you say it's really important to have that direct sales experience, is that, I mean, could it be either way? I'm, I'm going to imagine they're kind of 50 50, but I could be wrong. I've never started a business really.
1: You're right. There are companies that build products that basically don't have that, that haven't had to do that, where the founder doesn't have that. But I, ultimately, you're right. They do bring in sales professionals, people that are actually going to productize what they're building and get it out into the market. And that has to happen. But I think that the, the difficult thing is, is if you can't imagine
0: what that would look like- Even if you're not how- the one doing it, you have to imagine how it's going to be done. Yeah. And
1: the more experience you have, the more likely you are to understand that if your idea for, for distribution is weak or not, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you've never actually done sales and you imagine, oh, I'm just gonna hire a bunch of salespeople and they're gonna sell this How do you
0: hire the right salespeople?
1: Yeah, what does a right salesperson even look like and why would you think that someone would be interested in buying this regardless how good the salespeople are? How is it positioned, you know, like what's the value proposition? If you're not able to think through those things, if you're not able to think through the story that you would have to implant in someone's head in order for them to feel like this is going to help that bride who's getting married in 30 Mm -hmm. days be able to fit into the wedding dress If you're not able to imagine how you can deliver that narrative in her head at the right time, then I don't know how building the product, focusing on the product first makes much sense.
0: Okay.
1: That's the way that I look at it. And I think that the most important thing with all of this, though, is around the friction element. It Mm -hmm. really is. And I think looking for those opportunities, they all come focusing on friction. And I think let's talk about a couple of the business examples that we've seen. We talked a little bit about royalty exchange already. But one of the ones that I have, you know, we've been talking around about a lot around the office for the last year is Zillow. If you've ever bought or sold a home, you know that there's a lot of friction in that process. And uh, part of it is because there's cartel of realtors, basically, (laughs) who control the access to the listings of real estate.
0: Um, Big real estate. Can we call them big real estate? Yeah. Big real estate, like big pharma. Big pharma, big tobacco, big music. Exactly.
1: So these realtors, they control the MLS system. The MLS system is where all the listings of the properties that are for sale are and the history of those transactions. And that's a huge advantage. And they are inserted in the process so that you have to use them. And they take big fees, you know, about 6% in total of the transaction, Mm -hmm. which is a lot. And it takes an enormous amount of time. So Zillow started with the idea of, hey, you know, it's difficult. All the listings are not in a standard place around the country. It's hard to bring them all together. Let's create a consumer-facing website that basically aggregates all the listings around the country. And so people can see and search and compare on their own. And that's what they did. That was the core business. They got lots of eyeballs because of it. They turned those eyeballs into profits essentially by selling those eyeballs as leads to realtors who are, you know, trying to help people facilitate buying and selling a home. That was their business. That was their first approach, and it's remarkably effective. It's a very popular website. It's certainly one of the most popular ones in the world, and I use it all the time. Over time, they gathered more and more data, and this data then later became this extra advantage they had, and they started this thing where they call it a, a Zestimate, where they would estimate the value of
0: every home, and so the- Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But no, I get your point. The aggregated data and they started providing a service and allow people with curiosity who may not even be thinking about selling just be like, ah, what's my house worth?
1: Right. People want to know that, especially when you're in a you know market that's either going up a lot or going down a lot. People want to see you know what the value of it is today.
0: Make it feel better, make it feel worse, depending
1: on- Right. Right. You want to know what your neighbor's house sold for. It's a lot easier to find out. You don't have to ask them anymore. Right. You, know, you can just look and see too. Um, <laughs> so, but they, as they get more and more data, their estimates have gotten way better But again, it's all based upon this aggregated data they have. Now, what they've started to do in the last year and a half, maybe, is they've started to tackle the biggest problem, the biggest source of friction in real estate. And what that is, is it's think of yourself as a seller of the real estate, not as a buyer. And when you want to sell your home, it's filled with what I talked about, some uncertainty as one core source of friction. So you don't know what it's going to take, how long it's going to be, what what you're going to get out of it. Uncertainty is a killer. So they're trying to tackle... That great source of friction, uncertainty, by making offers to homeowners, people who want to list their home for sale, they can go to Zillow and they can get an offer from Zillow, where Zillow will buy their home. They don't have to worry about putting a sign in the yard. They don't have to worry about you know being uncertain for what might happen for the next six months. Or their months schedule, having to leave, etc. All the inconvenience around shooing your family out the door at dinner time, so that some strangers can walk through your house and rummage through your belongings. All of that is eliminated by Zillow doing this. The last financial results of Zillow I saw was that 40% of their revenue, even though this is a new service offering mm-hmm. for them, 40% of their revenue came from this service
0: now. So buying homes directly. And then selling them. And them. selling them. Right. So the revenue came from selling the homes that they had bought via this service.
1: Right. I think what's counted as the revenue is how much the spread was that they kept essentially. Right. That's obviously. what I meant. Yeah. And they've only been doing it again for maybe a year.
0: Yeah. There's actually a house, caddy corner to mine, that is up for sale by Zillow. Do you know how much they paid for it? I should go on Zillow and find out, I suppose. But no, I don't. I never really knew that. But if there's a little sign, it has a little thing and it says sold by z there's like a little Zillow branding on it and, and that's, I've never seen that before and I should probably take a dig into it and get back to you. I will say it's been on the market for quite a while. <laughs> Well, I
1: mean, maybe it would have been on the market for quite a while if the homeowner, yes, yes, so
0: homeowner got out, got his money. Now it's Zillow's problem, right? And maybe they exactly. need some work on whatever. I mean, how well they can sell the house is really more Zillow's problem than it is your problem as the homeowner. You've got your return, your your money, and you've moved on. Right, exactly. And I think that the thing is, is that
1: think of a, if, if someone's home has been on the market for a long time, for six months or whatever. I don't know. How, has it been six months or so? with this. No, house? I, maybe two. Oh, well, that's not that long. I think the average home is on the market for about about three months now. Really? Yeah. Oh wow.
0: I've been out of it for a while.
1: Imagine the emotional roller coaster that a homeowner is going through when mm-hmm. they have their house listed for
0: sale for what feels like a long
1: time. Whether whatever oh, the yeah, I, no, are.
0: I did have one. Yeah. When I moved from California to Denver, <laughs> trust me the hell out, man. Like the markets that I owned and sold them before it was like a matter of it was like a week. That was during the whole run up of prices and whatnot. When it took longer, I freaked. So the
1: thing is all that stress. Because there's all kinds of things associated with it. You don't know if your house is going to sell at all. You have no idea if anyone's even going to give you an offer that you can accept. And you go through all of this stress, this inconvenience for your family, all of these problems for months just to find out even what your
0: house is actually worth. Right. Just on top of all of that, almost more importantly, nine times out of 10, you're moving, you've already found a place that you want, but you need to sell the old place in order to buy the new place. That's the biggest hassle of buying a house.
1: So let's talk about strength of current, right? People do not sell- There's a deadline. They don't sell a house unless they have to sell a house. Right. It's either that they're being relocated, they bought a new house and right. they've chosen to go into a new house, you know, that their life situation has changed to such an extent that they need to downsize for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a weak current that's driving the sale. Oh of the no, home.
0: it's very strong. I have a place I want to buy. I cannot get in the contract with that place until I sell and have the money exactly. for the dumping from the old one. Then there's a real direct, I gotta fit into that new wedding dress house. Exactly
1: There's a real deadline around it and has real financial consequences, and people get very desperate. The thing is is that Zillow, if Zillow is buying a portfolio of properties, right. it's unemotional for them. If one is sitting on the market longer than another, that's okay. They adjust their algorithm and they will make offers, they'll make adjustments to the offers they make for future purchases they make from sellers. By doing that, they are totally upending the real estate business in general. and I mean I think that they're going to bring lots of people who maybe don't need to sell into selling because selling becomes so easy. What's interesting to me about this is, number one, is that as an entrepreneur, you see that the friction in the market doesn't go away. It evolves. It evolves. It evolves. So like, and the value that you create as an entrepreneur and as a business is your ability to constantly eliminate that evolving friction. So like we talked about with the ticketing business, you know, at one point having tickets resolve friction, but as expectations change and the market evolves, then the points of pain. Change over time. Okay. And so being able to adapt and look for those ways you can continually innovate, continually reduce friction is the way that businesses succeed over the long term. And I think that if you look at like what Zillow is doing, where first it was just about the problem was, well, we can't see listings in one place. It's a big problem. So they solve that problem. But then they realize, well, you know, that's helpful, but that's not actually the end all be all. As we learn more about this, there's actually much bigger opportunities here, which
0: ultimately evolve into them
1: actually acquiring the homes and reselling them all together.
0: I mean, it's nice if you kind of had that map figured out before you get started, right? Like, okay, here are the three fixes. I'm going to identify this one first, and then we're going to address these next two later. But that's one possibility. But the other, what I would call maybe likelihood, is that you get into one area of friction, and then as you're in it, the others reveal themselves just by virtue of operating within that space.
1: Exactly. One of the things within Royalty Exchange that we've noticed is that the uh, songwriters, these $3 billion that are being earned a year by these songwriters, these songwriters are viewed by the financial world as unemployed, basically. Right. Okay? So they're not creditworthy people, right. even though they sure should be, but also that they are paid quarterly, which means imagine if the only income you got or the bulk of the income you ever earned came in in one payment in a quarter and the payment from quarter to quarter could vary dramatically. And you had to then plan your life around those one payment you got in that quarter.
0: Yeah. Like you know your rents, your food, your vacations. And not to create any stereotypes, but you're probably not a very well budgeted, you know, spend. I don't know if that's the right word, I don't want to be insulting, but you know, we're not exactly talking about people who are got their financial management classes well in hand or anything like that.
1: Right. These people are generally more creative than they are. <laughs> Not very many of them have
0: CPAs. Right, exactly, you know? that's what I'm getting. I mean, I couldn't do it. I can't write a song and I sure couldn't do what you just described. No,
1: it's very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult for anyone to do this properly because they also have to allocate for their taxes right, individually. Right. It's very complicated. So in understanding this problem more, one of the things that we came up with as a product to offer them mm-hmm. is essentially a service where we pay them weekly. We pay them weekly for their income that they earn quarterly. So we have enough analytical data that we can look at what their projected earnings are. We can pay them weekly up until that quarterly payment comes in. And then we reconcile at the end of that quarter. And as a service that ultimately we hope that by doing this, that we would have more of them that want to transact their assets on our platform. And this was not something that you considered when you first started royalty exchange at all. No idea it was even necessary. Okay. But you look at it and you go, well, this is actually a huge pain point for all of the writers that we've ever worked with. Okay. And so if we can make their income predictable for them, it gives them a much stronger foundation to operate in their life. Sure. Okay. So they're thinking $500 a week instead of getting, you know, whatever it might be, $10,000 in April. Right. Right. You know, they'd be happy. So these things are not obvious at first. They become obvious the deeper you get into it. And sometimes those things go in directions that are bigger than what you imagined. And I think in the case of Zillow, Zillow has created a great business, um, you know, around selling leads to the realtors. Mm-hmm. But along the way, they stumbled across an idea that's much, much bigger. I mean, massively larger opportunity that basically actually eliminates the need for realtors almost altogether. So it's kind of, it really undercuts their cu- their primary customer group in right. a big way. But I think that it's clearly the biggest area of friction and clearly the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity that they have and clearly something that I think that sellers in particular of homes are begging for.
0: Sure. So, I mean, those are obviously pretty large, ca- I mean, Zillow in particular, that's that, you know, it's not easy to replicate. That's a lot of capital that you got to have on hand to buy portfolio houses and sit on it until you're able to sell them and things like that. But the same spirit, same strategy applies to something that doesn't need to be nearly as capital intensive for any entrepreneur trying to look at the same components of the business.
1: Exactly. And I think that, you know, you got to realize their ambition started off so much
0: smaller. I'm trying to bring this all back to an entrepreneur trying to find, you know, where they're going to, you know, direct their energy and whatnot. And so should you go in with smaller ambitions than big ambitions or or at least back to that stage ambition element that I mentioned before. It's like, I'm going to try this. And, or is, even is there a way to kind of start with a small ambition, but is there a way to identify a market that okay, what I'm going to do is very small, but I know I'm entering a space that has the potential to be very big.
1: You have to focus on, remember, the fifth step in this approach that I said is the hardest one. So the first one, just to mm. recap these. Yes, please. Questions. I was
0: about to ask that.
1: First one is, you have, is frustration mm-hmm. you know, with an experience with a product or service and essentially a recognition that there's a problem. The second one is digging into the problem by using the be, do, have framework. To understand the currents, essentially, that drive the behavior of the consumers, ultimately. The third one is you want to evaluate the strength of those currents, and you want to really focus on, on currents that are really strong. Fourth is you want to evaluate the market opportunity itself. Like, is, this, is the market opportunity big enough that if I devoted the next decade of my life to it, that it would be, if I won, if I succeeded, that it would be worth it? And are there artificial constraints that keep me from being able to succeed here? And those constraints could be, actually, we talk about regulatory constraints are certainly one. But it also could be that it requires you know ten billion dollars of capital to get started. Right. You know, something right. like that. Those are other it's just, constraints, right? That, that's it's just not realistic for me to do something about. The fifth one is you know your plan to begin to capture some of that market opportunity. The key thing is with that is what can you do today to start taking advantage of it? And if you have to have a whole bunch of things in place before you could actually begin to solve this problem that you've encountered, the odds of you being successful are very low. So but the, the thing is, is that the thing you can do today ultimately almost necessarily has lower ambition than the thing that you might be able to do a year from now. You don't have the resources or capabilities. You, might, you don't have the team in place. You don't have the market reputation yet. You don't have the characteristics that you really need to be able to take on larger and larger opportunities. So you have to focus in on the thing that you can do today.
0: Okay, first. Two quick things on that then. One, it sounds like the easier and the quicker that you can do something meaningful about it today suggests to me that the friction is big enough that there's an opportunity. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the friction has to be big enough. The friction is so great that anything I do right now is going to help and move the ball forward somewhat. Yes. Yeah.
1: And a lot of times we get too, we think in too complex of a way about friction. Sure.
0: It really could be like getting my kids to
1: school every day is a huge point of friction for me. So they go to a private school It's a few miles away, but it takes a long time in the morning to get them there. There's a private school. They have no bus system. It's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of ways I could go about solving it. So to make it so that basically I don't spend an extra hour a day or two hours a day, just trying to get them to and from school myself, I can hire somebody. I can have my assistant do it, mm-hmm. which I had her doing that. So mm-hmm. that did help a little bit with it. The other things that we could do, what I ultimately ended up doing is I got them passes for the bus service and essentially riding the, city bus, the city bus to school every day. Yep. Yeah. And back, and it's not optimal for them for a lot of reasons because it's not really very efficient, but it does get them there and get them back. But I was thinking... There should be some private service. There's so many of those kids that go to that school that live in my neighborhood. A group
0: of private. I mean, there are private drivers, but you're talking about more like a shared system, something that multiple right. people are are engaged in, not just on a one-off basis.
1: Exactly. And yeah. I mean, I would pay for that, for some safe person mm-hmm. in a nice van to take kids to school every day and pick them up and bring them back. I mean, yeah. like, so there are frictions that you experience. So this is something I personally experienced. It mm-hmm. caused co- lots of complaints for me mm-hmm. that I had to do this every day, take them to school Sure, pain in the ass. And what are the potential solutions there? And I think that there's, I haven't fully analyzed the market opportunity, whether or not it's big enough
0: if you scale that right. But I actually think it probably- I can think of a number of constraints as well. Kids, cars, insurance, you can go on and on. I mean, right? look at daycare, but we don't need to get into that, right? But yeah, okay, so it totally makes sense. So like things that everyone's sharing, if there's enough opportunity in the friction, if there's small enough constraints that you can make a meaningful impact today with just a few low ambition steps, then- clearly you're addressing an area that needs addressing.
1: And low ambition steps. If this is the business I'm trying to create is some transportation system mm-hmm. for private school kids, basically whose parents have are paying an outrageous amount for school, but still somehow I have to drive them to school every day. So for them, okay, I don't need to go and hire a team across Colorado or across the Western states or mm-hmm. something like that. And a fleet of these Mercedes vans, I could go and I could get a car and I could just shop it around to people I know, also live in the neighborhood who have this problem and, and offer and see what they'd be willing to pay. So, I mean, there's something I could do today to start it that I know of.
0: My other question along these lines though, is that if the friction is so great and if the lower level ambition is so, maybe for lack of a better word, easy to begin addressing it, do you also have to worry about other people doing it and now you have expanded competition?
1: Definitely. Competition is going to be a problem. There's no doubt about it. And I think that no matter what you're doing, that competition is going to continue to come into play. And your goal, the only way you survive as a business is that you have to constantly look for ways to improve the product, reduce more of the Mm -hmm. friction. And that friction becomes more obvious the more you do.
0: I mean, that's something that you're, I mean, obviously a royalty exchange that you're dealing with directly as as well. I mean, there's, I don't know if any new players have entered uh, since I last paid attention, but um, you definitely have a number that you've been slugging against as well. So like you have to kind of, I mean, but the thing is you guys all do it a little bit differently too. So it's, it's another.
1: Our approach is different than others. Most are just large pools of capital. But the biggest thing is no matter what our mission is to reduce the friction that both participants in the marketplace experience so that it's easy for them to transact with one another. And that friction, removing that friction, really has no limits. I mean, we've made it infinitely better than it was, but it's so obvious that there's so much more we could do to make it easier from here. So I think that'll never end. Okay. I think the most important thing is that as an entrepreneur, it's looking for that friction. Mm -hmm. Where is the friction? Where are the pain actually experienced by people? Remember that a lot of times that friction is not just money. The friction is often uncertainty. If you can eliminate uncertainty on the part of a consumer, that is one of the greatest things you can do to actually to make transactions more effortless. Mm -hmm. I think focusing on that as a core source of friction to eliminate is usually
0: very, very good just in terms of the observer or the listener here to all of this, I think that not only paying attention to the frictions, but also being very realistic about the constraints, that's the part that people will probably first overlook. You know what right. I mean? You get really excited about the solution to the friction, and then you, you the wave crashes against the rock of the constraints. And that seems to be a big, big, big part of what is necessary to succeed in this area.
1: I agree. And I think that if your specific plan, actions that you could take today to start to capture some of that market opportunity, the more clear you are on that, the more you'll be able to understand exactly how real those constraints are. Because if, again, when I try and sell the first client on my product or service, those constraints will become very, very obvious at that point of conflict of a sale. The closer you can get to doing that sooner, the more likely you are to understand those constraints and understand if there's a reasonable way to get over them. Again, you should pursue a different opportunity.
0: Right. So maybe one way to kind of trail out of this a little bit is you'd mentioned at least one book earlier in our conversation that you said, uh, I forgot what it was. It was a woman writer. Defining Decade. Defining Decade. And what's that about? The finding decade is about your
1: 20s as a young adult, essentially, trying to make your way in the world. And it talks about how critical that
0: decade is. Well, the decade of your life, not the 20s, as, as in like yes. the 1920s. Okay.
1: Yeah. So if you know anybody, I've given this book to probably 100 individuals who are in their 20s. It's such a critical time. People feel aimless. They're looking for their passion, especially the millennials. They're really mm-hmm. looking for passion. Passion, by the way, is not something that you discover. It's uh, without digging deep into the dirt like it's under a big mountain of hard work is the only place you find passion actually you don't it doesn't just emerge
0: you have to sort of seek it
1: you have to seek it and you seek it by working not by looking for the thing that energizes you but anyway this book what it talks about is that the most important thing about your 20s is that you set up the trajectory for your future and so being able to focus on things that grow your identity capital is the term she uses that being known as the kind of person who is good at a certain kind of thing And can be relied on in certain circumstances. So building that sort of reputation is your identity capital. You have a lot of energy. You have very few constraints personally in your 20s. I mean, you could go anywhere. You could do anything. You don't have the obligation of mortgage and things like that and taking care of kids usually. So there's freedom there and that freedom should be used to really focus in on growing identity capital. That's a basic argument. And it's a great book. I, tol- I recommend it to anybody who, it's a little depressing, I guess, if you're in your 40s and reading it.
0: Especially if you're coming out the tail end of your 40s. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, well, this is how I screwed my life up. That's great, Matt. Thanks. I appreciate the uplifting thought. <laughs> I found it maybe
1: when I was 40, I think. And I,
0: but- no, I'm, I'll give it a read. I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that because it's like, I didn't do that, obviously, right? I mean, I, I did a lot of skiing. But that's funny that that is my identity. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't take a job somewhere else because I need to be able to ski on the on weekends or I need to be close to that. Like, it's funny how you, you know, that that is my identity capital, I guess. I mean, I, maybe I'm using the the phrase incorrectly. I don't know, but it's certainly just in the five minutes we've been talking about, it kind of has that, yeah. you know, impact.
1: And, and it's not necessarily bad. It's, it, I think if you, if you're more aware of the impact, the thing is in your twenties, you don't understand that how different things will be in your thirties. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. You, you have kids, it changes, you know, you get married, it changes, your energy level changes, your willingness to take risk changes. It's to try and be as aware as possible that the decisions that feel like they're not important and that now doesn't matter when you're in your 20s, that that now actually does matter and it does have real consequences. And the path you choose will have unintended consequences. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily work all the time during that period, but it means that You don't want to go through it unintentionally and find out in your thirties that like, wow, I didn't use that time at all for things that I really, really mattered
0: to. me. Yeah. Just be more thoughtful in your experiences. Maybe those experiences may or may not include work, but they're still experiences that can have a lasting impact. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. No, I'll have to check that one out. Perfect. Great. Well, listen, thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Lydian Stoic or me at Anthony and Bruno. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.